I'm Stefan Sittig, and welcome to American Theatre Artists Online, where we talk with leading contemporary figures in American theatre. Joy Jones has appeared off-Broadway, in London at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and at various prestigious venues like the Public Theatre, Lincoln Center, and Playwrights Horizons. Known for her portrayal of smart, vulnerable, yet resilient characters, Joy has deep roots in D.C., and some of her most memorable credits have been on stages in the nation's capital, including Jubilee, A Raisin in the Sun, and Mary T. and Lizzie Kay at Arena Stage, and The Hard Problem, Cloud Nine, Belleville, and Invisible Man at Studio Theater. Her performance as Nina Simone in the world premiere of The Champion at Theater Squared in Arkansas garnered rave reviews and she has built a strong reputation in regional theaters across the country for her versatility, being able to play everything from jazz singers to white-collar professionals to Shakespearean queens and caring mothers. Joy has an MFA in acting from UNC Chapel Hill, and she is trained at the British American Drama Academy. She is a Helen Hayes Award winner and an instructor teaching voice and speech at the Shakespeare Theatre Company and coaching private clients. Hi, Joy. Hello. How are you? I'm great. It's great to talk to you today. It's great to, to talk to you, too. I'm so glad that you were able to join us on American Theatre Artists Online. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while, and I've been sort of following your career as it's been going along, and you've done so many different things in television, film, and of course today we're going to talk mostly about your theater work. So I'm glad that you had a moment uh, during all of this that's going on in this crazy year that we're having <laughs> to talk to, to us. Um, so how are you and, and how are you coping, first of all, with uh, COVID-19? Is everything okay? Are you hope you're well, uh, safe in, you know, and um, quarantined? I, I am. I'm safe. I'm well. Um, immediate family are safe and well. So, you know, like um, many of the people listening to this, we are trying to do the best we can in this new reality um, and, and also accepting, you know, the adjustments that we have to make and also that some things are merely pausing, you know, like they are just stopping for the time being and, and trying to figure out where we are. It's like, am I ready to get my hair cut finally? Or do I want to, you know, ride that out? How comfortable do I feel hanging out? Um, but, the, but the big picture is that I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine. Good. I mean, I, I, yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. And I think if you think of it as a pause, because, um, you know, everything in life is temporary, good and bad things, right? So hopefully we'll get through this at some point. Um, but um, how did you, you know, speaking of, of, of dealing with, you know, ups and downs, I'm sure, you know, you've been doing this now, uh, you've been performing as an actor, I mean, I, I know for a while now. And so I'm sure you've had a lot of ups and downs and there've, uh, but how did you get started? Like, what was your first thing that sort of sparked your interest in theater specifically? I know you've done a lot of television and film work and I wanna do another podcast where I can just talk about your television and film work, which is quite interesting. But, um, but today we're gonna to focus more on the theater. So in terms of the theater, what first sort of attracted you to theater or to acting? So theater, the first taste of it was um, a summer arts program in D.C. I'm a native of, of Washington, D.C., and it was a street theater group. So we trained in dance and in acting, and then we took our, our little show to 
I think there were two couple visits to a children's hospital to I think we were in the National Portrait Gallery one of their um, one of their stages and did a show which was maybe about 30 minutes in length I don't remember any of the songs <laughs> I think they were essentially um, where the the artistic director put lyrics like socially conscious lyrics <laughs> over existing pop songs wow. um, but that was that was the first real taste and it was that combination of, you know, learning and also getting to prepare to perform in front of people. And then, of course, performing, which was really magical. Um, then I didn't do that was maybe when I was 13, 14. I wasn't part of theater in high school because it was really clicky. Mm-hmm. So some people are <laughs> laughing in recognition. Some people are groaning in recognition. Um, so after having done it over the summer, that wasn't. That wasn't really my scene, actually. So then um, I didn't perform at all. Um, And then when I went to the University of Virginia, and I'm happy to tell everyone that that's where we know each other from. That's right, Wahoo Um, Wah. That's right, Wahoo (laughs) Wah. I just started in the School of Architecture because... I remember um, that. Sorry to interrupt you, but I remember that, that you were... I always thought it was fascinating. I was like this woman is really bright because she's like architecture student. All of us other theater people were like. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, my parents had both grown up poor, frankly. Um, yeah. And so, but I had had this really comfortable childhood and ballet lessons and violin lessons. And so, and, and as it turns out, both my parents draw. My dad is now retired and an avid amateur musician and into ballroom dance. And my mother is now a short story writer and a playwright and in retirement. So, you know, this all comes from them, Mm. but I felt some maybe internal and external pressure that um, going into the performing arts wasn't the thing to do. And and in, in a sense to show my appreciation for what my parents had given me, uh, the, I wanted to do something creative, so then that was going to be architecture. But as it happens, I was cast in a production my freshman year. And to add even more drama to anyone listening, the School of Architecture and the School of Drama were close. They were the two buildings that were closest to each other on the UVA campus. So you could literally walk down the steps of the architecture building, um, you know, on the outside, and then walk to the drama building. And there was the closest... Cafe and that part of the campus was in the architecture school or the A school. Uh So um, I got cast, I think my freshman, my first year freshman year, sorry, first semester freshman year. And again, the magic was absolutely there. And I think I got to play my violin too, which was sort of extra magical. And the, it was really the making art together that was the magic of that and sort of being fully enveloped and then spending, going back to the architecture school to, you know, draw late into the night and that not being a collegial process. Mm. Um, I made it through, I think two years of architecture school. And then one of the scariest things I ever did was tell my parents I was transferring from the school of architecture Mm. to the school of drama. And they did the best acting I've ever seen because (laughs) I explained with my, like, all of my 19-year-old, like, deep feeling that I needed a more collegial, a more collaborative artistic process, and that I hope they would respect my decision. They also sidebar everyone. They were paying, they paid for undergrad. Right. So, 
So they were like uh, trying to figure out, yeah, what's she doing, right? But they nodded and said, okay, um, you know, we have some reservations, but we understand. Hmm. Um, we also, we suggest if you're going to go into drama that you double major in something else. They didn't quite say fallback. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was the journey. So there had been sort of streams of being a creative, artistically minded kid early on then a pause for high school, which was fine. And mm. then really coming back to it, um, with the, you know, not, not with the immediate sort of gung ho enthusiasm of my parents, but certainly the opportunity to, to do that. And, and, and also say to artists, that's been an, <laughs> I was going to say it's a mixed blessing, but it, it's been a blessing. Mm. Um, but in a sense, because they didn't, cause they didn't block me early on, mm. that has, I think that's given me even more of a sense of obligation to stick it out or to see it through, or at least to be true with myself that that it's what I want to continue to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a weird way, it's kind of like I, I mean, not exactly. I don't keep having that conversation with my parents all the time, but mm-hmm. because I came to it from something else, trying to always be real with myself, like, is this what I want to do? And giving myself permission to change my mind whenever I change my mind. But so far, the answer has been yes, I would like to go <laughs> well, forward. Well, and I think for all of us that have had, you know, I had similar conversations with my parents where they're like, you know, you're going to UVA and why are you majoring in drama? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you got into this really hard to get into school, apparently, you know, supposedly. And um uh, why, you know, and so I had a lot of those conversations and, you know, when you're a teenager, you kind of don't get what they're talking or you get it, but you know, it's parents. But as you grow up as an adult, you realize, you know, yeah, they have your back and they're just wanting you to think beyond theater. And I think the the theater artists that I have talked to throughout this podcast now, I've been doing this for several months, uh, the ones that have an interest outside of just theater, actually have something to bring to the theater, uh, whether it's social themes or architecture or just an interest in politics or the world. So I think our parents wanted us to be well-rounded, right? Or to just so that we're not just doing theater all day long because then you don't have anything to act about. Absolutely. Right, and I've always felt that about you uh, from a young age when we were young together in college. I always felt that you had a a broader mind. Your mind was beyond, you loved the theater and that was how you wanted to express yourself at that moment. But you could really do a bunch of other things too. You weren't just one of those quote unquote theater majors that like, basically if you didn't get cast in something, your world fell apart. I never got that feeling from you. So I thought that was good. And and I think that, I don't know if that's how you were feeling, but but that's the, you conveyed at least to me that you were, um, you had an interest outside of just. Well, first of all, it's like, fascinating to hear about college joy that's fascinating um yes yes it's funny too because um one last thing uh, and then back to theater is that having sort of essentially gotten the the sign on if you will from my parents that I was leaving architecture the major the double major that I ended up choosing was international relations I think it may be called I forget whether it's foreign affairs or international relations at UVA mm-hmm. because at that point then I was either going to be a performer or a diplomat. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was definitely one of those people where for better or for worse, I, yes, I was 
was and am passionate about a, a number of things. Um, you, you have a worldly view about you, and I do think yes. that you think, I always felt that you were, you know, as, as a student myself who was coming from overseas when I got to Absolutely. Charlottesville, from Brazil to Charlottesville, I always appreciated your view, your worldview, your um, very, what I thought was very enlightened view for someone who was American, quote unquote, you know, as oh. I thought. So that was also another reason our friendship, I think, uh, blossomed during during school. But that being said, I think that you've carried that through your career, if I can say so, by looking at your work and what you've done. A lot of the work that you've done has a social element to it. It has a telling of a story about uh, someone who perhaps you know, illuminating audiences about someone who maybe they didn't know about. Like I'm looking at things like Mary T and Lizzie K at Arena or, um, you know, uh, some of the other shows that you've done that seem to, to cast a light on characters or social issues that are important to us. And, and a lot of your work that I know of is in the DC area, but I know you've done other things as well. But so do you do you seek out those kind of roles? Do you seek roles intentionally that have a social... Um, side to them to tell a story about someone that's important for our society or is that just how it happened hmm. i'd say it's a bit of both um how so so let me see so i'll try to track that through <laughs> um so of course for so like most theater actors in the u.s i'm not a member of a rep company Mm-hmm. I know there are a couple. So growing up in DC, I know Arena had historically had a repertory company. I know that Every Man Theater in actually I think Arena, maybe Wooly Mammoth as well, mm-hmm. and Studio as well. So I know that there's a theater history certainly in the like 20th century, late 20th century for rep companies. The only one I can think of in the DC area. Like DC Baltimore area is Everyman. Yes, Everyman Baltimore. actually has one now. Yes, um, I think so. Um, I've worked at the Denver Center a couple of times, mm-hmm. and they have fairly recently dissolved their rep companies. Mm. I know that in New York there are smaller companies that are rep companies, and and I should tell your listeners, I'm sort of co-located. I mean that that's a bit been affected by COVID as well. Sure. Um, sure. So I have housing in D.C. and New York, mm-hmm. and that ends up being about a, it really depends on the time of year. It, it's really more of a 70-30 split where I'm in D.C. Um, I, I live with my partner here, um, boyfriend, uh, my parents are here, um, but I have great friends in New York. So when I go up to, I go up and I'm there to, to do some non-acting work, but also definitely to audition or TV and film, or and, and actually have had a couple of, of recent TV things. Mm-hmm. Um, now I've just lost the range of. of TV no, no, I was just. I know, yeah. I know. So I there think, fewer, sorry, no. I just caught it. So there okay. are there are none of the major. Let me see. Can I how carefully? None of the very large theaters in New York, and and by theaters I mean the non-commercial theaters, non-profit theaters, have rep companies that I can think of off the top of my head. If someone knows of them please feel free to correct me. I know smaller companies sure. that have rep companies and certainly across the field, there are affiliated artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's not a model. So sorry, that was, that was a big sort of a big background to choosing the roles versus being chosen for them. Right. Um, so given that, 
if, if I had been in a rep company, I could definitely say, oh, no, I didn't. Unless I was help planning the season, I took whatever came to me. Um, but since I'm an, I guess, independent performing artist, mm-hmm. it's a combination between things that interested me and therefore I pursued. Um, then it's uh, people thinking of me when they have a piece in mind. Um, I, I also have an, an agent in New York, so it's also what comes across her desk that she gets an audition Um you know, where she gets an audition appointment for me and we sort of have a conversation about whether that's a fit. Mm-hmm. So it's a mix, but definitely early on, it was because I was particularly interested in those stories. Right. Um, yeah. And I mean, you're, if you think about your physical type, right, Joy, because mm-hmm. you're, you're taller, probably, at least in my mind, than the average the, 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 you're, you're, yeah, than the average woman. So that's one thing that often women find um, limiting when they're being cast. If they're taller than the quote-unquote leading man, uh, that can be, uh, it used to be, I don't think it is anymore, but you know, you've probably seen a change, or I hope you've seen a change in sort of the way casting directors and the way agents and, and others are able to find roles for you in theaters think about you because... Um, I think of you as such a versatile act, actor from what I've seen you do and that you can really play anything. That's the, oh, way, that's the way I've seen you. Uh, you're really almost beyond uh, type to me. But because you're tall, because you are a person of color, do you find that, that it's hard to get some of those roles or do you find that, that you are limited in the number of roles that kind of come your way or do you feel that you've been able to do a, a wider There are broad patterns, and I'll tell you, and um, I feel like we're we're in a a slightly echoey room with some friends, Um, tell you and the listeners, my new friends, um, type is one of those things that I was most ambivalent to negative about as a younger theater artist, and now wish that I had listened to more. I mean, and, and there were no like dangers that would not have happened. There's nothing as dark as that. Right. But I was ambivalent because type seemed to be a narrowing, a restricting. Um, and so, but, but then, then there are, which, which our training wasn't about neither our undergraduate training at UVA mm-hmm. nor I, I got an MFA in acting from UNC Chapel Hill, nor was the training there about that. And in fact, it was all about, well, it was about expansion and flexibility and versatility. At the same time, we are in the bodies that we are in with the ancestors that we have. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So I'm a 5'9", slender, athletic woman. Um, In fact, I... Uh, this is a true digression, but it's circle back. So I ran track in high school mm-hmm. and um, whenever, I, so I was watching the Olympics channel recently. So there are like reruns, of course, there as in everywhere else mm-hmm. and saw a world championship from 2018. And I said to my boyfriend, oh my gosh, that's my body type. The like sprinter, high jumper, yes, uh, long jumper body type. And he's like, you say that every time you watch track. <laughs> well, there's but something there then, though. You should do a play about yes, a famous, absolutely. a famous. But to track give you a visual, star. so right, so tall, leanish, you know, sort of whatever, lightly muscled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm also dark brown skin or he- he- highly melanated, as the children are saying these days. Oh, is that the correct um, term now? Okay, I don't. And know I'm Black American. Yeah. Um, 
And so what that has meant at times is that for me very particularly um, that I have played women across the sort of African diaspora. Yes, I was so going to say, I've yeah. Been, I think I've been uh, Jamaican to the best of my ability at Mary T and Lizzie Kay. Uh, yes. A gentleman who is, who is West Indian came up afterwards once and he said, oh, I could see you were trying to do a Jamaican accent. <laughs> <laughs> you yes, said, sir, I tried my best. I tried. Um, yes. <laughs> It's my job. I've been, exactly. I think I've been, I've also portrayed women from Liberia, yeah. uh, Rwanda, mm. uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Wow. Um, a woman who is uh, Parisian French, but of, of Senegalese origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, uh, African American or Black American women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've also tended to play, because I'm tall um, and Tended to play women with status. Yes. So in Shakespeare, actually, I did. I did play Juliet out of undergrad. Yes. Um, which we, we can talk about that at some point. Mm-hmm. But then I played Lady Capulet. You know, very early on, I played Titania the summer after school. I was going to say you've done a lot yeah. of classical work, really. Yeah, uh, I love which it. I think is great. Yeah, and I remember I following your career, you know, from afar as a friend does, and mm-hmm. and seeing oh she's doing a lot of classical work, and that was happening for a while, and I was really excited about that for you because I've always thought that was something that you could totally sink your teeth into. But then I've seen that you've also there's another side of your career which is a more sort of socially conscious playing women of color that are perhaps were you know were, were pioneers or were on the mm-hmm. cutting edge or interesting uh, characters that were, you know, that were, you know, that, that their color was part of their story, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of both. And I think it's great that you can, that you can straddle both those things because, you know, it, it yes. does make you more free to be able to do a variety of different roles. And now I would hope with everything that's supposed to be happening, I don't know how much it is happening, uh, uh, to break open sort of casting, uh, you know, to break open sort of this idea of their roles that you cannot play joy, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I believe that's the case. And the one thing I will say about, um, so I, I want to finish up with, with tight, yeah. um, and, and it's not, it's not a neat package, but I'll say particularly for, younger performers or performers newer in, in their careers mm-hmm. or early career um, artists, I guess I would say is as you're learning to know yourself as an artist and a person, I would say, um, keep a rough sort of not accounting is too technical, but keep a, keep an eye on any patterns of casting mm. as you go through your career so that if you, because that's useful information for what yours, one of my grad school professors would say, what your wheelhouse is. Yeah. We all want to, as artists, express a range of ourselves and sort of end a range of humanity, but see if, if there are some patterns. Mm-hmm. So if you are the tall, powerful goddess, know that that's something that you bring that a number of people see you as um period at the same time that may not be all you can do or all you want to do so then you may have to change groups you may have to write your um you know your own materials or bring in monologues that maybe people didn't expect so mm-hmm. if you are a six one young woman uh, and you want to do juliet like really work that mm-hmm. because you may have to convince someone 
Yeah. Um, that's a great, that's great advice to anyone starting and continuing, uh, you know, the beginning part of their career in theater. And I guess it takes time to develop that because you see sort of your type and you see, you know, what I learned, it was hard for me coming out of grad school, but I learned what will people pay me for? It took me a long time to figure that out. So I was like, why am I not getting cast in this and that? You know, because in college and grad school, you know, it's educational. So you're getting cast as part of a learning experience, as part of a, you know. But once you get into that real world and you need to book that gig, oh, I see. And that's when I realized, oh, people will pay me to dance. People will pay me to dance in the chorus of a musical, to be chorus boy number three who lifts the leading lady. Um, They will not pay me to be the leading male character who's the romantic lead. So you just learn that about yourself and you can then either go to change that or expand that if you want or not, or embrace um, your your role, right? So yes. you've done and a bit of both. School, um, then classes or coaching, mm-hmm. whatever sort of continuing education you have yes. will be the safe place to break down what people might be perceiving mm-hmm. um because i think that that's also a frustration too so as you're gathering in a, in a sense we're talking about gathering information but then if you don't know what to do with it or if you take it personally and yes. I, I think we're inviting people to not take it personally that's it yes right? you may need a coach if you have a positive relationship with um faculty or instructors either from your college days or even before that to sit down with them and say this is what i think I'm being told or very explicitly being told, mm-hmm. uh, how does that strike you? How do you recommend I, I deal with that? Yeah. Um, so, and this is as far as I want to get back to you, you're talking about if things are opening up, Yeah, they are and, and have been, I would say, um, since I, you know, before either of us were a thought, you know, there have been people of color, let's say in the New York Shakespeare in the park since the late sixties. Mm-hmm. So that was not, so in some senses, the classical world opened up for non-traditional or multi-excuse me, multicultural casting to some degree before contemporary theater did. Yes. I feel like now, um, but that said now in contemporary theater, I do think I get to do a range of roles as well as be African American. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, in New York, because there are now um, playwrights who are first generation or second generation who have parents who are directly from Africa, mm. they are actually less interested in casting Black Americans. So obviously, because it's obviously not a color thing, but there's a sort of ethnic cultural difference and that, that's not a like complete no walls are down. I mean um, you know my dad worked and lived in Africa for for several years in the 60s as part of a thing that he did a uh, work that he was doing for the Peace Corps uh, and he constantly says you know to me you know there's a difference between African and African-American and 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 the African people uh, you know a lot of people from Africa kind of sometimes when they see someone who's African-American portraying them on stage, they can tell the difference, right? They can tell and they can say, oh, you're not from Senegal or you're not from the Congo or you're not from, you know, and they, they're different body types. There's looks, there's cultures, there's a whole, right? You know, it's such a big continent. But I always think it's good to have representation of some kind, of, of any kind, really, uh, that isn't, you know, anything that's that we can have that expands that representation, any step that we can take. But you see, you know, your roles have been... Um, very diverse as I look at your at the stuff that you've done. But was there one? Has there been sort of 
you've identified sort of a trend, a little bit of a trend of classical roles and then also um, socially conscious sort of roles. I'm looking at some things like, for example, Mary T and Lizzie Kay at Arena Stage or The Champion where you played Nina Simone, the famous jazz artist. Um, do you find an affinity? Well, first of all, what has been the most challenging role for you so far? I, maybe that's when yeah. we can sort of approach it. Um, was it Nina Simone? And I know you did Nina Simone at Theater Squared um, mm -hmm. in Arkansas. What, talk to us a little bit about, you know, what's been a role that has really appealed to you and challenged okay. you. Um, and the, I'll segue this from the end of our type conversation. I would say the, the one thing um, about being a tall woman is that I haven't always gotten the guy so like uh -huh. in grad school, particularly, I was the woman that this was this was like obviously not my real life. That's private. But um, <laughs> I was gonna like, say, wait, what? <laughs> you no, know, like on stage with in a number of roles, the lead male actor. So I was as tall as or slightly taller than the male lead, mm -hmm. and in a number of pieces, I would be. Like, he would encounter my character and like her, but then leave her for a more <laughs> conventional, like a woman the, of order. You would not be the conventional. I remember exactly. a production of Miss Julie in I, college. Right. That um, probably typifies sort of, you were not playing Miss Julie. Well, yeah. And part of it, too, is that I was either, and, and my mother's very wise, she, she said that, Joy, because of your height, and, and maybe because of my cast of features as well, I either had to be featured or the star, mm -hmm. and kind of like where you were talking about the sort of information you gathered. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a slightly funny version. Um, mm -hmm. The Nina Simone, so um, for folks listening, this is a, a wonderful play called The Champion. Uh, the playwright is Amy Evans, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll give you, um, I'll try to not give you too long of an origin story. So Amy is an African-American playwright from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, but she actually got her master's in playwriting in the UK oh. and started working with a theater company there, whose name escapes me. She started working with the uh, artistic director of that theater company and uh, a black British actress. And forgive me, folks from the UK, if that's not how she would self-identify, that's the identifier I'm, I'm plucking out of the sky. So I apologize if, mm. if that's not how she would choose to identify herself. But her name is Noma Dumaswani. And um, she, for folks, she's the original Hermione in the Harry Potter show that was on Broadway. This was like when her, when Hermione became black. Oh, so, okay. The show, the, the stage know. version. Uh, right. And she's also been a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company for mm. years. Anyway, the, the three of them started workshopping this play about Nina Simone, and they workshopped it with built scenes with a group of British actors, including the actress Gugu Mbutha-Ra, which people may know from movies and TV. Um, she was in famous San Junipero uh, episode of Black Mirror, and mm. she was in that mm, Midland concussion movie with Will Smith, but lovely actress. <laughs> yeah. She's wonderful in her own right. Anyway, right. but folks like that. Yeah, um, wow. Then, that was a number of years ago. The play never quite made it to full production. Mm. And actually, it, um, interestingly, and this is sort of a, a tie-in to Black Lives Matter to a certain degree, uh, obviously, and of course, Nina Simone's deep involvement in the 
in the civil rights movement in the 60s, mm-hmm. Amy thought that she might have been... How can I put this? She, she might have been adding content to the play to explain American racism to a British audience in a way that she thought wasn't serving the story of the play. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Oh, so because in the UK, she'd have to do all that extra sort of background, whereas in the US, yeah. you wouldn't have to. So there are two versions of the play. There's a UK version and a... I, I think so, and the, and the play um, wasn't has not yet been published, so mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know where those drafts live. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure she has them you know, somewhere on a, a flash drive or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so how did you get to connect with this piece? So Amy brought it back to the States, and I think, um, as I was explaining, I'm sort of co-located. I bounced mm-hmm. back and forth, excuse me, between New York and D.C. a couple of times, but we were both living in, still living in New York at this time. So this was like 2010, 2011 or so. Mm-hmm. And she said that she, I helped her cast um, small roles or like recommended actors in a number of plays. And then she said she had this Nina Simone play. And I have to tell you that um, I, I cut my hair a number of years ago. I'm growing it out now. But when I first cut my hair, Perfect mm. Strangers, black, white, otherwise, would stop me and say, has anyone ever told you you look like Nina Simone? So I knew there was something there. I think um, it's your, yeah, your eyes and, and uh-huh. you have a very, very strong facial features. You always have, mm-hmm. like you said, that very classical kind of look. And yeah. the, the eye, uh, the eyes, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, great. So and so it, that was in the atmosphere. That was sort of uh, something yes. telling you, sort of, hmm. <laughs> and my mom's from North Carolina, and uh, Nina Simone is from North Carolina, mm-hmm. maybe an hour or so away. So yeah, yeah. I, I've, not, I've not done my DNA. Not yet. Um, okay. Who knows? But you, know, you, you never know. You may be related yeah. in some way. Um, so Amy had that... You know, and that was that was just a rumble. She was she was like, I, I have this mm-hmm. Nina Simone place. So we're like, okay, I mean, you know, keep me in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't you want, don't want to push too hard. Yeah, you don't want to be you funny. don't want to be that person, right? Yeah. And so then I think it was 2016, and by that point wow. I'd moved uh, to DC, and she said, Joy, I've gotten a grant to do a table read of the play I was telling you about. So it, it disappeared for a long time, and we sort of both went on with our lives there was a table read then there was a a staged workshop was actually one of i've never done quite like this in downtown brooklyn at at the Mm. bricks arts uh, center Mm. if people know it so it is part of the bam roughly part of the bam campus in in downtown brooklyn where it was state excuse me it was staged we had blocking but the the script was on really big uh, projection screens. There were three or four in the space, sort of like reading off of teleprompters. Oh. So you were sort of reading and sort of acting, huh. and that was to make sure that the the play made sense staging wise. Hmm. And then, could the audience? Sorry, I'm just curious about this. The way they did this, could the audience see the script? They could. They could. Yes, that was very terrifying much. as an actor. <laughs> no, no. I mean it. Only terrifying if we uh, ignored our director's direction. Okay, he said good. this is not fully staged. Right, right. You should sure. not pretend to be off book. Right. Don't try to so don't take your eyes was, off the screen. 
Absolutely. And so this must be some version of what people wow. do on Saturday Night Live or mm. other, mm. you know, I have a, a smidge of teleprompter experience at this point. So it, yeah, it was, it was like that, where you're sort of acting in the direction of the other people. And, and with, you know, several weeks of knowledge of working right. on the play, but still wow. not uh, claiming to be fully staged. And I, I actually was... It was scary. I was going Yeah, and this was at this was in Brooklyn, right near near. This Bam, was in Brooklyn, part of Bam. And and did, was there singing at the time in the piece already? Was there? Yeah. Music? So this is because um, there's music in the play, right? Explain that to people. There is music in the play, right. and um, there's a original there's original music and then snatches of songs that Nina Simone fans would know. Mm-hmm. Um, First, I would say that Noma Dumaswini does not sing. Mm-hmm. So then the play was never going to have a lot of music. It's not um, a musical. I, I don't think of it as a musical. I mean, the clips that I've seen, no, I have not seen. No, it's, it's like a play with music in the, in the style of like Piaf, about Edith Piaf, that I think also started in, in England and came to the U.S. Uh, later. Right? Okay. Which is yeah. a play, mostly a play about her life, and then there's some okay. singing. You know, has to be. I love that example. Yeah. Yes. So mostly a play with music. Um, and then I would say more music got added. And, and I will say, you know, in, in, in full disclosure to theater makers, um, as someone who, I'm an actor who sings and, you know, have my current voice teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and perform plays with music, I would say, as, as opposed to musicals, mostly because of my vocal type and timbre. I don't have the biggest voice. Um, so that that's also as far as type. Like I went to New York and would go to musical open calls and then there were people who had been on the Color Purple Color Purple tour and it was like, oh, okay. Oops, yeah. That's a Broadway voice. Right, I no, I, I've always thought of you as an actor who sings. And I yes. think that this is a perfect piece for you because this is precisely what's needed for the champion, it sounds to me. Absolutely. Because the acting yes. is so paramount. And it, this is not a, and I don't, people who are listening and don't know about the play, I want them to understand this is not a jukebox musical about uh, with all the songs of Nina Simone put in. It's not that kind of show, which those shows are awesome. I love them, but that's not what this is. It isn't, and I will say it has, like like us having a real, real conversation, mm-hmm. I think the play may have had a bigger life in a show business way if it was more of a jukebox musical. Right, because people um, come in expecting to hear all the Nina Simone hits or whatever, absolutely. and that's not what it's about. So yeah. it's not only that the original actress didn't sing, it's also that Amy and then the director... Uh, of the eventual world premiere, uh, Reginald Douglas, mm-hmm. who's now the uh, associate artistic director at Studio Theater. Yes. Um, Here in DC. They are huge fans of Nina Simone. They didn't want to do the jukebox version. Mm. And they thought there are enough, there's enough mu- Nina Simone music in the world and enough material of her singing that that's not what we want to do. Um, at times, I, so I get that. I definitely know that that may have narrowed the audience or maybe the producer interest. So mm-hmm. that's also a real thing. And also too, as then we sort of get like, get into like, what's your lane? Mm. I, um, so I, I had been working with Amy since that table read in 2016. And that was only Amy and some actors she had pulled together 
to work on to workshop the play for a couple days, give her notes, feedback. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but then in, in this version at Brick in downtown Brooklyn, uh, Amy had worked with Reg on another piece, so she essentially handed him a lead actress, which, like, from an acting standpoint, yes. Like, we always <laughs> want it to be that way. Right, right, yeah. I'm sure for him, mm. not that he had huge doubts, but that we had to forge our own relationship, which we absolutely did. Sure, yeah. Um, and so then, sorry, let me. I'll finish the production history, and you, you let me know what I've forgotten. So then okay. the play was workshopped at Theater Squared, and I think that was the summer of 2016. Okay, yes, the summer of 2016. So Theater Squared in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested, that's the um, where the flagship university is, mm-hmm. um, the University of Arkansas. So uh, for folks who are familiar with where we went to school, UVA, or where I went to grad school, UNC Chapel Hill, or other... Uh, you know, flagship college towns in southern states. It's one of those things where the state politically may be red, right? But, but then it's a little blue oasis, yeah. Right, and there's like kombucha pride parade has just finished <laughs> at Denver, but then well, like the Ku Klux Klan also met in the town next door. So right, it's terrifying. And, and, you know, and as a, you know, as a gay man, I often have that that reaction. But as as a woman of color, it must be. You know, I know you were in a very uh, safe um, area in that particular part of Arkansas. It's not all of Arkansas, but it is kind of disturbing where you just like go, you know, 30 minutes outside of town and it's scary, you know, for those of us that are not used to, to being in those areas. But uh, how was it playing that character, too? Because Nina Simone, you know, was not known for being like super... Uh, chill around white people either, right? So they're, they're, right. they're I, I have this long-standing story that I heard, and I heard it from, you know, I'm a big fan of Dusty Springfield as a singer, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you knew this story, and you may have it in your research there somewhere, but Dusty Springfield was a huge uh, British uh, singer who sounded black, but she was a white mm-hmm. Irish Catholic woman from Hampstead in London, and I'm a huge fan of hers and always have, and she really loved African-American music, and she championed it, so that's what's different, is that she... You know, she had some hits, but her hits were really not about that kind of music. But but she definitely could sing in that style. And mm-hmm. she loved it and promoted it throughout Europe, right? So she was responsible for Motown artists getting a lot of their first gigs in the UK, Dusty, because she created the Sounds of Motown TV show, got all of them there, little Stevie Wonder. So, so you know, she, and she was in a long-term relationship with Martha Reeves the, from Martha and the Vandellas. They were partners for a long, you know, they were girlfriends for a long time. So there's all this background about her being just loving the African-American experience and wanting to, you know, but she was white. And she came up to Nina Simone at a nightclub once or somewhere. I don't know what the story exactly was, but just to tell her how much she appreciated her and, and loved her work. And Nina Simone apparently threw a glass of whiskey in her face and called her a honky. <laughs> wow, yeah. I did not know that story. Yes. But and, can- and Dusty always says right after that, I didn't care because I love Nina Simone so much. And I understood what she was going through as an African-American artist. She was thinking, I'm a white artist getting hits and having success in a recording career. And she didn't. So I didn't think of that at the time I asked her. So, so Dusty didn't get upset that she had the whiskey thrown in her face. <laughs> so um, that, hilarious? that one, I had not heard. Yes. Um, I will tell you, I'll, I'll tell everyone um, 
what the champion is about. So it's not just about Nina Simone. It's actually centered on a historical uh, event that Amy sort of expanded on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the story or the backdrop of the champion is that uh, Nina Simone and her integrated band have just finished performing at a college. It may have been UNC Chapel Hill. It may have been NC State. I'm not remembering offhand. Sure. Um, I may have gotten the state wrong, but they were performing at one of these sort of flagship Southern colleges and universities that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. There was an ice storm, so they couldn't fly. Oh, sorry, this was 1962. They couldn't fly back to New York City, so they had to take the train. Uh, Nina and some of the band leave the train station and they leave one of their band members to guard the luggage. He also just doesn't want to go. I think they're going to look for her, something to eat and drink because they just performed, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, a white woman who lives in the town accuses this black band member who's left at the train station of stealing her purse. Mm-hmm. And then the police are called. And the story is, and the band members agree on the story, mm-hmm. uh, strangely enough, or sort of poignantly enough, the man who was accused, like, has no clear memory. It's like he's, he's purged this moment of terror. Wow. But that Nina used her star power, some combination of her star power, that temper or that peak that you're talking about from that dusty Springfield mm-hmm. story. And she read this white police officer, the riot act. Do you know who I am? I will call the university president. Mm. I will call the mayor. I will call the U.S. senator. I will call your congressman if you do not let me and my band go. And that she just sort of went on a tirade, mm-hmm. a button, you know, for their life and limb. For good and reason. Train, right. Absolutely. Then the train comes and they get on the train and make their way to New York City. Mm. So... It's that combination, that sort of artistic ferociousness and hints of temper, which are definitely related to her mental health issues. Yeah, and she had those as well. Yeah, and the and the the the, the deep. Um, I've heard a lot of different stories about was yeah. was there really. Was she, you know, there was a little bit of mental health issues, but were, were the mental health issues caused by the oppression caused by right. the frustration of having all this talent and ability and really not getting as far in her career as she perhaps thought she could have if she had been not black, right? She Right, because she was a child prodigy and mm. she had mm-hmm. a, a Russian, Russian-American uh, piano master or piano mistress and she applied for Juilliard and did not get in because mm-hmm. they, she said they didn't think she had it. And then, of course, you know, looking back, we can say, well, of course, a number of things could be true. That could be about her ethnicity. That could also be that she didn't have the thing they were looking at, you know, for on that day. But to your to your Dusty Springfield story, for every wonderful story of her performing at a concert in Oakland, and a woman having a fussy baby, and as Nina Simone is, is getting ready to go on, she, you know, she she um, jiggles the baby to make it quiet down. Mm-hmm. There's the Dusty Springfield story, right? Yeah. So there's there's this sort of very complicated, musically ferocious, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, not not always the most personable person. I know she <laughs> had a very prickly yeah. relationship with her daughter as well. Yeah. Um, but but to the champion. So now now folks know the sort of the origin story of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was 
interesting because I think, uh, trying to do a quick survey, I think that was the first time I had played a living, a, a, you know, a person who had actually lived. A famous, uh, yeah, here. living person. Those are hard to play, right? I talked to Ed Giro on another podcast mm-hmm. who played Antonin Scalia in the originalist at arena stage. And he said this, you know, it's hard to play real people that not just, we all play real people to some extent, but it's hard to play someone that's well known by the public and the public already has some sort of opinion about them because they're in the public eye. But, you know, one thing that I heard was that um, Al Shackman, who was the master guitarist and friend of Nina Simone's came to see you perform and said that you really channeled her. He had been part of the project or a supporter of the project definitely since the, the workshop in downtown Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And actually he and I uh, sort of collaborated on a mashup of a, a Bach fugue and a blues song huh. at the, the end of that workshop in New York. And mm-hmm. then in um, after the world premiere at Theater Squared, and that was, let me get my years right, that was the fall of 2017 was the world premiere. So mm-hmm. first, you know, full production. Um, because there's not a lot, because it's a play with music, uh, the theater, Theater Squared wanted to expand the offerings. So then there were mini concerts. I saw that. That's available online. I saw something online. I watched the whole bit of the mini concert that you did. Oh, sweet. And I, yeah. Joy, can I just tell you, I mean, and I'm not a huge Nina Simone fan, but I have watched oh. videos of her and I have heard her sing many, many times recording, uh, never live. Unfortunately, I did not get that chance. But um, watching you, you really did channel her. I mean, there were oh. things I was so, and I don't want to say proud because, you know, you say that it's like I'm your brother or someone that I've known <laughs> you for 20 years, but I don't mean it in that. You know, I I was so impressed and so um, elated to be your friend and to have known you when, because um, the, the work that you did on that, and that, that's maybe why I wanted to talk about it more than some of the other things that you've done. You've done a lot of different things, but to me, this is so spot on uh, the way, at least in that concert bit, what you've done. And it, go, it to me, it goes beyond singing. It's not about singing. It's about how you interpret her and you really channel her personality and her interpretation of this singing, which is so much more difficult to do than just singing, if that makes any sense. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, thank, thank you. You can be proud of me. <laughs> Good. Well, <laughs> you I'm proud of this, you. Baby artist. You can uh, be proud of me. I'm proud of you, too. Um, the process, I would say, and, and for anyone who has or will do historical figures, um, and I would say historical figures, especially those who have been recent enough that mm-hmm. we have film footage, yeah. um, is interesting because we have a wealth of material at the same time. We have a wealth of material, so that's a positive for us as, as actors doing our, our acting homework. Um, but then it can be complicated, as, as you, hint, you hinted at with Ed Giroux, where people may come in with a pre-existing relationship to how they think they understand that person and mm. certainly with with Nina Simone I mean her fans her, her original fans are mature but they're definitely still alive and they may have you know seen her in concert may love to her music broken up to her music you know entertain you know all, all sorts of and her things family and friends are still alive a lot of them too, absolutely as you, as and it was not only Al Shackman um and and not only Al Shackman, who was uh, part of the the development of the champion, but other bandmates and 
friends and loved ones came particularly to the workshop in, in, in downtown Brooklyn because many of them are still in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... <laughs> maybe I've mentioned the sort of theme of obligation or uh, to storytelling a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. There's that... Obli- so there's the wanting to to do the work of accuracy as you can and obligation to the people, but not so much that you feel trapped by documentary information or trapped by people's expectation. So to some degree, um, and also because by the time of the world premiere, I had been with the play for several years Mm -hmm. and the play, I think the Nina that you see is both Nina Simone and built on things that I do well artistically because I had mm-hmm. been doing it for a while. Mm-hmm. So, of course, if anyone uh, writes their own stuff, then they definitely, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that, that everyone has that in them, but if you write your own stuff or you have people in your circle who write, who know you, there can be a marriage of, of character and actor. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, with the champion I wanted to honor Nina Simone as as I understood her but I also wanted to honor her as she was written by Amy and I don't mean that to be a cop out but that there was no way there was no way that Amy or I could possibly encompass the sort of number of stars in the sky of the versions of Nina Simone that people have you know what I mean? No, yeah, you can't tell the whole story of Nina Simone in this right. one play. You can show us one part of Nina Simone or several parts, but not. It's not. It's not just about her. It's about the situation. It's about how she dealt with it and her her role in that larger story that the playwright is telling. And I think that's good. It's a shade yeah. of her. It's not the whole the whole canvas. You can't. You can't do that in a two hour play. You can't. So and, I think and it was smart. one of those things that you know as we were going into tech. I was in Fable and, and, you know, couldn't get to sleep and thinking, you know, can I do this? I'm needing to call myself by <laughs> saying, you know, you're, you're doing, you're doing the best you can. You're working hard, but you're also, this is also theater too. So you really, you're honoring the text, which now Amy has been working on for any number of years. And which is, I'm sorry, I, I left out a bit is based on interviews with Al Shackman Mm. other bandmates, other friends. Great. So it's it's not quite documentary theater, but definitely based on events and based on stories and, sure. and remarks from folks. That's great. Um, but at that point, I had to give over to the story um, and hope for the best. <laughs> of course, and you did. And you know what's great about it is that it's not, from what I saw, you know, and I did not see the mm-hmm. show, the full show, but from a, a portion of that concert bit that you did, what I did see was it's not an impersonation that you're doing because mm. I think a lot of people go down that route. That's not what you're doing. There's a deeper delving into the character of this person, regardless of whether she's famous or not. And I think that's what's real interesting in the way you approach it. So kudos, bravo to you. And I really um, am so excited. And I have to I, I hope that it gets are there any hopes of doing it 
of it having reproduced or, you know, I was gonna say now that we're in this COVID-19 era or everything's on that pause that you mentioned earlier in the interview, did you have a lot of projects that were sort of kind of taking off that had to stop? Are you doing a, what are things moving online? How are you uh, shifting to this uh, pause that we're in? Are you taking time to just uh, do other things? Like how are you facing um, the pause with with uh, Nina Simone on hold, or was there going to be another production? I don't know, or, or whatever the latest thing was that you were you were working on. So I was actually in rehearsal for Seven Guitars at Arena Stage mm-hmm. when the shutdown happened. Mm-hmm. So we were two weeks in. We had fully blocked. We had costumes that were built. You know, shoes were pulled, wigs that had been measured. We were we were like deep into it, mm-hmm. um, and that was put on pause. I've just gotten the official yet not official, maybe I'm sure it will be published by the time the, uh, this interview comes out, um, but ARENA plans to do it in 2021. So oh, good. knock so on one for yeah. that. Um, so talk I about it, playing. it is really just a pause. <laughs> then, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I, ho- I hope, you know, I hope the world is in a different enough place that that, that comes to be. And I was yes. playing Vera Dotson, uh, the role Viola Davis originated on Broadway. That's not too so. shabby, yeah. <laughs> Well, I definitely have to go see you in that. Then I'll be, I'll be, I'll be marking my calendar for next year. Um, are they? Is, uh, so they've they've said that they'll they'll do they're going to do their best if all things are better by then to do it uh, uh, in the next season. Absolutely. Uh, and then great. in the meantime, I've been, you know, as we all have some some mixture of uh, worrying, mm-hmm. resting, mm-hmm. <laughs> doing projects. Um, I am taking, I'm taking an, a, a Zoom. TV acting or particularly self-tape class. Mm. Um, so one thing, I'd taken a physical comedy class actually before mm. uh, Seven Guitars started. Not that physical comedy had much to do with Seven Guitars, but I wanted to make sure I trained. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll also say for particularly student listeners, I find that some actors, as, as distinguished from our dancer peers or our singer peers, after some actors have finished their principal acting training, they don't particularly train uh, that often. Yeah, they're um, too busy doing getting work, right? So they're not training. Yeah, interesting. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, and after having done a show with lots of singers again at, at Arena Stage uh, Jubilee last year, yes, it it was, and and having a, a dear cousin who's a dancer choreographer. That's something I, I wanted to correct in my own process. So dancers and singers, just, they keep training yes. much more frequently between paid work than actors do. And um, I find that that suits me. It makes me um, maintain, you know, maintain skills, learn others, hopefully, you know, sort of damp it down any bad habits or shtick or ticks that I might have. So I'm taking that self-tape class. That's to keep active, but also, too, because of, you know, the current pandemic conditions, or TV, film, and, and probably theater as well, uh, initial auditions and probably maybe even callbacks will all occur by self-tape. Wow, yeah. Uh, so it's good training to get. Now's absolutely. The and you're also, also... Sorry, go ahead. And I was going to say, very briefly, um, I also teach occasionally for Shakespeare Theater. So depending on enrollment, I may be teaching my first... And, and at Shakespeare Theater, I usually teach voice and speech. This is Shakespeare um, Theater in D.C.? Yes, sorry, in Washington, D.C. Spirit Company. Uh, is this going to be online? Well, if if the, there's sufficient enrollment and there's a quorum, I think, of or a minimum of 
10 folks. Can yes. anyone yeah. can anyone enroll in this class or how does it work? Do you have to be a part yes. of the So you just go to the Shakespeare Theater Company website in DC. Right. And this is for this is for adults. Yep. Adults, so yeah. it's a it's a 6 week evening voice and speech hmm. workshop. Wow. Uh, so that would be my this will be my first time teaching online. I've attended classes as I said I'm taking um, the self-tape class, I'm taking yoga classes, listening to uh, webinars through SAG-AFTRA, that's the, the mm. union for film, television, radio um, actors, to get a sense of what's happening in the industry. Mm. Um, but this, this would be my first time teaching. Um, so yes, it was, it was interesting to hear, you know, before we started recording, um, to hear a little bit from you as instructor to instructor, how that's going. And I'm hearing from folks that it's a combination of rewarding and challenging. So Yeah, you know what you know what I find enjoying you all. Yeah, what I know and I'm glad you're doing it. And so this is at the Shakespeare Theater Company you'll be teaching a voice voice and speech and acting. It's a voice with focus on voice, right? For the actor. Yes. Okay. Which I think any any person and I mean by student I mean, you know, adult student would would benefit from learning from you because you've done such a range of things from classical pieces to um, pieces that required you as an actor to also sing or have a special vocal type. I mean, you obviously have the, you, you have the experience uh, to teach, uh, to help some young people and some people who are adults who are in the middle of their career perhaps also um, expand their vocal um, knowledge for, for the theater. And, you know, uh, Kristen Linklater died recently and, and, and right. you know, right, the voice teacher that you and I had, you know, she wasn't our voice teacher, but we, we had a lot of voice training of her, of her style. I remember we were in college. So um, I'm sure that, that you have so much experience to bring to that. So people, I hope, sign up and do that. And, you know, uh, it, it's been, you know, great talking to you, Joy. And I think it's it, the, the online teaching thing, I think, is something that we're all going to be doing for the next uh, while. And I think you'll excel at it because you have more of the one-on-one -on -one time with students too, yeah. because you can, you can talk to them offline or off class as well. Um, even if it's, you know, again, it's not face to face, but you, I feel like there, I've found that there's time to have more of a talk. Uh, uh, it's a little less hurried than the yeah. actual class. That's what you'll notice. I think it's a little less running around rushing. Uh, you, if you're more reachable and more approachable in some way. Very interesting. Yeah, um, the last thing I'll do, um, since we've been talking about classes, yeah. is that I would say that training whatever form it can take for creative folks at this time, I would say training or nurturing, let's say, if training feels too technical, is a valuable thing, not only because you already have these skills, um, <laughs> you have this energy and you want to do something, so there's a certain sort of running out the clock by doing something, but you're staying current in your fields, mm. you're honoring your gift, and you know we're all going through serious stuff right now, but society will need us to tell stories, whether ours or others. So from a, from a sort of a, well, the self-interest and then like the biggest interest, you know, the world stories of all, if you can keep working or, or stay limber or even watching TV, maybe with a technical eye or reading a, a script, some way that feels like you're honoring the craft that you've chosen. I think that's that's a way to stay healthy, but also to get ready to, to tell more stories when we can see each other again. That's fantastic. Yes, Joy, thank you so much for that. And I think um, you're being here on American Theatre Artists Online, too, and sharing your 
um, story and a bit, a little bit about your life and experience is also helpful. So students or, or current actors or anyone who's interested in the theater can listen to this podcast and get a little bit of what it might be like to take a voice class with you or what it might be like to spend an afternoon, uh, you know, having a cup of coffee with you because, you know, uh, it, it all comes through. And I think that it's, that's another way to learn too, to kind of, um, hear stories of other performers and, and how they're, they're doing and what they're, they're putting out there into the world. And you've certainly put some amazing stuff out there and I'm looking forward to seeing all the other stuff that you're going to be doing as, as we move into the end of the, the rest of this year and to 2021. So I'm really looking forward for that seven guitars at arena stage. I've got my fingers crossed that that happens. Not so much for you. I want it to happen for you, but I want it to happen for us, the audience who want to see it. <laughs> uh, wonderful August Wilson play uh, at arena. So thank you so much, Joy, for being on American Theater Artists Online. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Have a good one.